Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. Uh, my kids are up here in front, so I'm probably going to get lots of waves and go daddies. Um, it's a pleasure to be with you here today. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Eric Cohn, and I serve as our global engagement pastor here at Three Rivers Church. And for those of you who do know me, um, you're probably thinking, why? what's he doing up there? Why is Eric preaching? And for many of you, you know that Mitch has been on his sabbatical, and so we've had the wonderful opportunity and privilege of having uh, other folks throughout our fellowship and in our congregation, neither, even some folks to come who are from other churches who are going to be able to uh, preach for us. And I was even reflecting on this yesterday, um, how uh, blessed we are to have such gifted and capable teachers within our body. Um, and I think it's, it's something that Mitch does a great job of drawing our attention to, that preaching is not a profession, but preaching is what each of us has a responsibility to do as we go about our days and our domains, as we engage and interact with one another, and as we seek and find opportunities to make the Lord's name great among people. So it's just been fun. It's been fun to experience folks that I haven't got to experience in a while. And so all that ends today because you get me. So here we go. So uh, it's, it's, it's going to be good. It's going to be fun. Um, the Lord has been good to us throughout this time. But, Mitch, just so you know, when you get back, the rest of us are taking a sabbatical. Okay? So <laughs> I hope you're ready for that. So uh, I'm pretty manuscripted today because there was a lot to unpack from this passage. And when I was uh, getting ready uh, for this passage, my first thought was, oh, my gosh, what am I going to say? And as I dove into it and dove into some other resources, I was like, there's a lot here. And I was I was preparing for it and was like, man, this is going to be like two hours long if I get charismatic and freestyle my preaching. And so I'm going to stick to my manuscript so that it doesn't get crazy up in her. So staying on my manuscript, it should only take about an hour. So don't worry about it. I'm just kidding. It'll be it'll be less than that. So celebrate my preaching because that means Mitch is coming back soon. Um, so I like this. I love interaction from the crowd. So in my profession, I do team and leadership development. And so when I do that, I feed a lot off the crowd. So Miss Georgia, I need some amens and hallelujahs every once in a while because I need interaction here. So if I say some, if I don't say anything amenable for about 10 minutes, just say it regardless. Just say it. Dub, I need your laughs as well. I'll just look up and be like, help. I think this is funny. I need you to think it's funny. Um, so anyway, I have a question for you. Does anybody else, as we've been going through Genesis, find yourself getting frustrated? Like, oh my gosh, why, why don't they just see? Why can they not see what, what is going on and what they're doing and, and all just the dysfunction and everything that's going on as man tries to insert himself into God's will and God's promises? I mean, this, this chosen family of Abraham, I just see, seeing them like wane and, and whine as they jack up <laughs> the Lord's plan and, uh, this family just seems to be more dysfunctional than my March Madness bracket right now because my only hope is for Duke to win today because, I mean, really, who who saw Tennessee beating Gonzaga? That just makes no sense. Or not Tennessee, Texas Tech. My bad. Tennessee, too. Um, but anyway, I mean, just crazy stuff going on here. So back to Genesis. Um, as Corey said last week, God is moving uh, the story in a very particular direction and to a very specific end. And so if we looked at Genesis, we've just seen the Lord's faithfulness as he just orchestrates our dysfunction in order to bring about his good purposes. So Corey also pointed out last week 
that the creation account gives an explicit record that God created the union of man and woman to be monogamous, and any man who takes an extra wife is going to be living outside of God's good and joyful intent for the marital relationship. We see in Genesis 2.24 where it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Unfortunately, what we have seen throughout Genesis and will continue to see is the polygamous disobedience of man as he tries to go about helping God accomplish his will and purposes through the bloodline. And again, as Corey shared last week, we will see the disastrous effect of man living outside of, uh, of the good and joyful design that God created for marriage and in husband and wife oneness. All of these choices and lifestyles are catastrophic in the joy and functionality of the oneness of marriage. However, we see that no action or decision of man can thwart the good promises and plans of God. That's perfect timing. Um, What we have seen and will continue to see is God's unwavering faithfulness to both his promises and his people, even as they seemingly do everything in their power to jack it all up. Uh, But God spoke the final word through his son, Jesus, in Ephesians 5, when he called his people to the joyous monogamous love and fidelity that was emblematic of his love for his bride, the church. So what we see in today's passage is that two women would use the births of their own children and their surrogate children as opportunities to put their feelings into words by celebrating and gloating towards one another. This is a messy passage. Multiple wives, multiple births from slave maids, sisters' hatred kindled towards one another, and all of this which will be acted out over the course of years and years. But despite all of this, we see the Lord working out his plans for our good and his great glory. We have the genesis, pun intended, of the 12 tribes of Israel from one father, but from four wives or four women. Um, At the beginning of this passage, Jacob didn't know that he would be the father of 12 sons. All he knew is that his offspring uh, about his offspring was that he had heard the Lord say at Bethel in Genesis twenty eight fourteen, your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall sp- and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Obviously, Jacob didn't know that his children would come in three sets of four. He didn't know that his first four would be born to Leah. All he all, all she did Although she did have a seven-year head start. Uh, Jacob's next, next four would be born to slave maids. And the last four would come from the sisters. Two from Leah, technically three because she also had a daughter. And two from Rachel. And of course, Jacob could not have imagined the birth wars that would ensue as his wives fought for his attention and his affection. So, let's pray and then we'll dive in. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word, Lord. We just... Uh, Lord, we thank you that um, we see the gospel manifest throughout the whole of Scripture, Lord. The gospel is not an introduction in the New Testament, Lord, but it is, it is evident and made clear throughout the whole of Scripture, Lord, from the creation account, Lord, to your coming and making all things right in Revelation. And so, Lord, we just pray that we'd see that today. We pray that we would see in the story of Rachel and Leah and Joseph, Lord, we just pray that we'd see your faithfulness, that we'd see this is not a story of human um, effort, 
uh, and human cunning, Lord, but this is you orchestrating all things for the good of, the, of your people, Lord, and for your great glory. So cause us to see that today, Lord, and may you be made great through the preaching of your word. In your name we pray. Amen. So we're going to be looking at Genesis 29, uh, verse 31 through Genesis 30, verse 24. So I'm going to read the whole thing. It's a lot. So try to hang in there with me. Follow along in your Bible. I'm reading from the ESV translation. Um, and so let's dive right in. When the Lord saw Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but, ba- but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons and therefore his name was Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. Chapter 30, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, here is my servant, Bilah. Yeah, I'm not a biblical languages guy. Bilah, Bilah, something like that. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave her servant Billah to, uh, as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Billah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Billah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. And then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name uh, Naphtali. When, when Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah uh, bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come into me for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night and God listened to Leah and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again and bore uh, Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterward, she bore a daughter and called her uh, Dinah. And then God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. 
She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another. So, yes. There's a lot there. I don't know how I got the baby mama war passage, but I'm going to do my best with this. So, (laughs) as we dive into this passage, uh, uh, we must understand that Jacob did not hate Leah as we would normally use the word hate. Um, Hate here, used in verse 31, is in the relative sense just meaning unloved. He did not love her as much as Rachel, uh, which is clear from the preceding verses when he says, so Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved her more than Leah. So I just wanted to make that caveat there. Now, first importance, we see that despite the sinful polygamy that had engulfed Jacob's life, the Lord had begun to work out his own purposes. God himself had closed the beautiful and much-loved Rachel's womb and opened the womb of her lowly, unloved sister, Leah. As you can imagine, Rachel was devastated. Uh, As Jacob's choice wife, she had rightly expected to be the matriarch who would fulfill the Bethel promises. In the Mesopotamian context in which they lived, um, barrenness was not so much pitied as it was disdained. In contrast, her older sister was marvelously fertile, uh, having one son after another as Jacob worked off his seven-year debt for Rachel. So as you can imagine, the disdained infertility of Rachel did not cause the marital smoothness that Jacob would have hoped for in his favorite wife. Naturally, unloved Leah's hopes soared. Perhaps she thought, now as this remarkable set of sons is being developed, Jacob would come to love me too. All the while, Rachel felt increasingly diminished by her sister's success in having children. Thus, we have two desperate women, one desperate for love and the other desperate for children. Oh, the joys of polygamy. Um, we We can see Leah's desperation for her husband's love by the naming of her four sons. Reuben means, look, a son. Verse 32 says, Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. It is significant, as in other namings of her sons, that she credits the Lord for the births. It seems that there is no doubt in Leah's mind that it was God who is doing this. However, as she does with all the subsequent namings, of her son, she couples the naming's meaning with an explanation of the significance of the name as it relates to her desire to be loved by Jacob. For example, Reuben, she exclaimed, uh, with Reuben, she exclaimed, the Lord has looked upon my affliction with this initial birth. Her hope to be loved peaked and is evident in her statement, now my husband will love me. The same pattern reveals itself in the subsequent namings of her sons. Simeon means the Lord has heard. Maybe she thought perhaps this child would turn Jacob's hatred into love for me. Maybe because the Lord heard, uh, heard, Jacob would also hear. Again, we see her striving for Jacob's love with Levi, which means attachment. In verse 34, Leah proclaimed, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. This time, we see Leah not wishing for love, but for attachment. We see the unfortunate effect of Jacob's love for another by Leah's fleeting hope for his love. She now starts to request much less. 
Sorry, I lost my spot. Uh, at this point, she merely desires some level of attachment. Finally, with this first wave of children comes Judah, which means praise. Verse 35 says, And she conceived again and bore a son, and said, This time I will praise the Lord. What's interesting here is that what we see is that we see Leah made no plea for love or improved relationships with her husband. She had given up. But though she may not ever enjoy Jacob's love, God had given her four sons, and she was thankful for that. If only Leah could have seen down the generations, she would have been astonished at just how blessed she really was. Her last two sons, Levi and Judah, would respectively father the priestly and kingly tribes of Israel. Leah's blood would flow through the veins of Moses, Aaron, David, and Jesus Christ himself. As we step step into chapter 30, we see Rachel's barrenness become progressively more intolerable with each of Leah's births. She was understandably humiliated. Leah's beautiful little boys inflamed Rachel's maternal desire. She became envious and bitter. She had forgotten uh, that her barrenness was God's doing and that he is the giver of life. However, at this point, thoughts of God were far from her. She becomes so desperate that she approaches Jacob and says, Give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Jacob's answer would not suffice for Rachel, though. She decided to take matters into her own hands through the surrogate use of her maids. She, she was thinking that perhaps she could catch up with Leah through, the, through a surrogate mother. And her ploy actually worked, kind of. Um, her maid bore two sons, Dan and Naphtali. The name Dan means judged or vindicated. In verse 6, Rachel says, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. It seems that she believes that God is setting things right for her and that she is finally being vindicated. Her second child, Naphtali, means wrestling. In verse 8, Rachel says, With mighty wrestling I have wrestled with my sister, and I have prevailed. I mean, this is just your typical baby bearing from the same husband, scorekeeping sibling rivalry, right? Just standard stuff. Uh, Oh, but the baby wars were only getting started. So Leah struck back by giving one of her slaves to Jacob, who in turn gave Leah two more sons. Gad, meaning good fortune, and Asher, meaning happy. So now Leah's winning the childbearing war six to two. Again, oh, the joys of polygamy. It's like that book, Oh, the Places you go, You'll Go. We're going to do Oh, the Joys of Polygamy is, is this book right here, which is no joy whatsoever. I heard you, Dub. Um, so could the baby wars get any worse? As a matter of fact, they could and they did. Uh, we read in verse 14, in the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went out and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother, Leah. This is significant because what he found was an aphrodisiac fertility drug. All right. So the mandrake is a Mediterranean plant that bears yellowish plum-sized fruit in the summer. In the ancient times, mandrakes were famed for arousing sexual desire and for helping barren women conceive. We see this in other parts of the Old Testament, like the Song of Solomon, the love book. Um, And significantly, the Hebrew word translated mandrakes is almost the same as the Hebrew word for love. 
Many ancient, ancients called mandrakes love apples, which, yeah. Babe, can we get some love apples? That sounds, that sounds, yeah, that would, this is awkward. Her dad's sitting right next to her. Um, moving on. <laughs> It's worth noting that the power of mandrakes uh, was a superstitious and non-scientific idea. So, never mind on the love apples, babe. They don't actually work. But what is clear here, what is clear here is that Rachel and Leah believed the mandrake myth, and thus the mandrakes became currency in a desperate bargain. Again, oh, the joys of polygamy. Verse 14 through 16 says, And Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, Then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come into me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So she lay with So he lay with her that night. The deal takes place, of course, because both women are now desperate for children in the baby wars. Leah gets her night. Rachel gets her mandrakes. It seems that these girls inherited their father Laban's wheeling and dealing skills that he employed on Jacob as well. The irony of the mandrake deal is that it is Leah who bears two more children, while Rachel remains childless for three more years. So much for love apples, right? So this situation, however, makes it abundantly clear that it is God who accomplishes his divine purpose, even amidst the polygamous mess that Jacob finds himself in. Leah's first of the two new children's names is Issachar, which means wages. It would seem that Leah is implying this name to denigrate Rachel uh, for making her hire Jacob with mandrakes. Leah's second of these two children is Zebulun, which, whose name is unclear. However, Leah does bear a third child uh, who ends up being a daughter whom she names uh, Dinah. While Leah is popping out babies one after another and giving them names that clearly indicate she's rubbing it in Rachel's face, Rachel is in deep loneliness and sorrow as a result of her barrenness. However, her day would come. Verses 22 through 24 says, Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called upon, uh, she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. Rachel had finally come to the end of herself. The beautiful, favored wife had given up on her devices and plots to win the baby war. There were no more surrogates and no more mandrakes. Everything was of God, pure and simple. While they did not realize this at the time, Leah and Rachel had children only because God had ordained and empowered it to happen. But both of them had been been visited in their lowest states. This was grace alone. All was of God. The angel-laden ladder at Bethel, with God's agents ascending and descending, had, full, had been fully operational throughout the scheming and manipulation, the surrogate competition, the love potions, the selling of intimacy, the celebrating and the gloating, the humiliation and the tears of lovelessness and childlessness. It is refreshing to see that with the birth of Joseph, Rachel's joy seems to leap from the page. God had taken away her reproach. 
She called her son Joseph, which means may he add. And indeed, God would one day do just that with Benjamin, son number 12 for Joseph. So how fascinating is it to see the Lord working out his good and holy plan, even amongst the human determination and cleverness that would not and could not accomplish that which only God can accomplish. We should be encouraged by this story. We are not much different than Leah and Rachel. We fight, we judge, we manipulate situations, we desperately seek validation and affirmation from those around us in ways that are unhealthy and unholy. Preach. I'm sure that if we were to step back and look at our own lives, the way we are able to look at Leah and Rachel's lives and Jacob's life and Abraham's life and Sarah's life, it would be much easier for us to see how desperate and misguided our attempts are to achieve meaning, significance, and affirmation truly are. Leah and Rachel sought love in all the wrong manners and all the wrong places. That is not to say a wife should not desire love from her husband or a husband should not desire love from his wife. We should. It is good to do so. But it is clear that they were placing their identity in Jacob's affirmation or their ability to bear children. And the placement of our identity, anything apart from Christ and Christ alone, is disastrous. The reason the story should be encouraging to us is that while we do very similar things, God has proven in this story and in our stories that he comes to the lowly in their humble condition. Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King, but Martin Luther, upon reading this account, asked, does God have no other occupation left than to have regard for the lowliness of the household? Luther's question was answered not only here and throughout the scripture, but in the good news of the gospel. We see this when Mary heard Elizabeth confirm that her womb bore the Son of God. Mary exclaims in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 48, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble state of his servant. For behold, from, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Jesus himself said in Luke four eighteen through 19, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set liberty to all who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The story of Leah and Rachel is not merely a story of our ever wavering faith and trust in the Lord. It is a story of his unwavering, unfailing, never-ending, always and forever love that uses our shortcomings and lack of faith to accomplish his purposes and to reveal himself in our deep sorrow and loneliness. So what are some themes and takeaways that we see in this passage? First theme, and this is going to sound familiar, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, just like Leah. God uses the lowly and the least likely candidate to accomplish his will. God himself came as a lowly baby to a lowly carpenter in a lowly manger to become a lowly servant and to associate with the lowly, the most isolated, rejected, and unwanted on earth. We also see the covenant with Leah is how the Lord completes his promise. 
Just as Corey said last week, Leah was the first wife, the covenant wife. Just as we saw with Abraham, it is Sarah, the covenant wife, through whom the seed of Jesus would come, not through substitutes or other wives. The Lord will not compromise on his standards so that we can appease our impatient and demanding need for the Lord to work in our timing. Let us not be deceived into thinking that we are any better than Jacob and his wives, though. Our mishandling of blessing may look different, but it's just as rooted in doubt and fear as theirs was. And this story is not about man's faithfulness, but God's unwavering faithfulness, even as his people butcher and botch the blessing. I think it is also worth noting and remembering that blessing does not mean that we have ease or bounty or any other material desires that we may have. The blessing that God gives and passes through the generations of Abraham is the kingdom. God is blessing them and us with family inclusion, adoption. Our hope is not in earthly blessings and materials. All the goods that we receive is God is God equipping that which he commands. Blessing is intended to accomplish God's plans in his timing, not ours. We don't live for blessing. We lived we live as blessed to be a blessing. Because we have already been blessed. We get so concerned with our specific time and situation, but God is focused on the mission and the long-term fulfillment of his promises. We also see that the covenant is not based on good people and bad people. It's based on God's faithfulness. If it was based on good people or bad people, there would be no blessing. There'd be none whatsoever. And finally, while God is focused on his long-term plan for the reconciliation of all things back to himself, he still sees and is intimately concerned with you and me. He leaves the 99 to come after you. He leaves the table to wash his disciples' feet. He visits and hears you in your lowliness and desperation, and and he cares and is concerned with your heartache. So, a few practical things for us to, to apply from this. First off, guys, one woman. It's an easy takeaway from this one. One woman, one wife. Ladies, one husband. Okay. Ladies, don't let your husband have another wife. <laughs> Luckily, we've got laws here to make that a lot easier, um, unless you live in Utah. Um, an, another message for young people. <clears throat> I think this passage should impact the way we date should impact the way we engage with one another premaritally. The mingling of souls is significant. Sexual involvement with another one has profound impact on the good design of God's will for marriage. The Lord is working through the muck and the mire of each of our lives. Each of us has scars. But for those of us who are in Christ, those scars are a testimony and evidence of the Lord's good work in our lives. Let me tell you something. The world doesn't care that we can obey the Ten Commandments. Doesn't care. It's not a standard for the world. The world doesn't care that we can be biblically holy. Now, this doesn't mean that we should not seek to be holy. The scripture tells us to be holy as he is holy. But what the world cares about and desperately needs is to know that even a dead person can be brought to life and that the broken, the broken can be healed by the all-gracious and all-powerful and all-loving God of Jacob, even amongst his dysfunctions. 
So don't point the world to your good works. Point the world to Jesus. Thirdly, be holy. Seek to live in alignment and accordance with God's good will. Seek to do good works at all times. Faith without works is dead, but don't hide behind your works as an excuse not to reveal the love of Jesus to a lost and dying world. Our works are important. Jesus is more important. Finally, just as we say every week, we should respond in worship. Psalm uh, 147 says, Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. So as we close out today, as we wrap up our time together, um, as I went into preparation for this passage, it was so easy for me, as I said at the beginning, to look and go, what is wrong with them? Um, And the more I prepared for this time, the more I was just like, that's me. That's my story. That's me waning and wavering, scraping and crawling for affirmation, seeking to find my identity in anything other than Jesus. And so my prayer for us today is that we may rest in the all-sufficient power of Christ, that we may know that he is the one who loves us. It is good to seek the love of our spouse, but it is better to seek the love of Jesus. And through that, we are able to love. Husbands are able to love their wives as Christ loves the church, and wives are able to love their husbands. So let's pray and then worship together. Father, uh, we praise you, Lord. Um, Lord, we're thankful again for your word. Um, Lord, we thank you for rebuke. We thank you for encouragement. Um, Lord, we thank you for um, us being able to see our story woven throughout Scripture. Lord, it would be foolish of me not to <clears throat> acknowledge that there are there are struggling marriages in this room. There are hurting people. There is there is barrenness. There are mommies that desperately want children. Lord, there are mommies that have children and they're fighting cancer. And Lord, my prayer is that you would visit us in our loneliness, that you would make your presence evident in our weakness, and Lord, that you would make much of yourself to us, Lord, so that we can rest in the all-sufficient power of Christ and Christ alone. And so, Lord, may we worship well, may we praise well, may we look to you as king. Lord, may we raise our eyes above our momentary situations and trials, but Lord, we are thankful that you um, associate with the lowly, that you visit us in our affliction, that you are desperately concerned and interested in what is going on in our life today as well as for eternity. It's your name we pray. Amen.